0: We good. Okay, good. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for revealing to us your love. Thank you for loving us. We love because you first loved us. Let us not forget that. May we always embrace it, as well as the expression of said love, which is your grace. Thank you for revealing to us your grace and what it gives to us, primarily faith that saves, but also faith that delivers us day to day. What a fantastic learning process this has been, and we are so very grateful and thankful. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make this evening and these things a reality on a night like tonight. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel of Salvation and Sanctification. This is Part 112. Again, I have received a good amount of feedback from our recent lessons regarding saving faith and God's love. Uh, A lot of tough lessons in a 112-part series. If you've been here for the whole time, which... uh, Yeah, you all have been. Um, Not every lesson has been easy. Uh, And that's a good thing because, I mean, the Bible says that the Lord God scourges those that he loves. He disciplines those that he loves. And so hard lessons just means he loves us. Um, But he's also following up with these fantastic principles on faith, grace, and love. Our recap lesson, uh, being this past Tuesday, um, is worth some highlighting up here on the board. The living word. We rely on the person and work of Jesus Christ because he's the living word. And that is something that I gave you that little analogy to a contract. You don't, we don't worship a contract. You know, some business people might do that. But we don't. We don't worship a contract. We worship a a person, a human even, Jesus Christ. So we rely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our faith is wholly dependent on his veracity. He, his person, is the truest source, then, of our living hope, to borrow from Peter in 1 Peter 1.3. He is the truest source of our living hope. First Peter one three says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." So we have this living hope, folks, and we should live the spiritual life. The righteous man shall live by faith. A more practical person may say, in light of this clearly stated theology, well. How do I obtain said living hope? And as the word states, here's the answer our part in hope. So, you want that hope? You want that living hope? You don't want to just depend on a contract, just depend on the perfect integrity of God, which can, and some senses feel cold. Well, how do we obtain this hope? receive faith in humility. What have I been saying for years now from this pulpit? The key to the spiritual life is humility. So receive faith in humility. If you do this one simple thing, you are given every reason to hope because God-given faith never fails. Now, with that said, I need to be clear on this topic because I get the sense that some of you are a little confused Not because of anything confusing in the Word of God. Rather, because the word faith requires context. Context when it's used. The word faith requires context when it is used. For example, is it fair to say that a person who goes skydiving has faith in their parachute? Yeah. However, parachutes fail, don't they? Yeah, and don't overthink this. So, something that might be called human faith, like skydiving, or a more grotesque version, how about beheading a Christian in the name of Islam? Human faith fails. So, in the human context, faith here supposes failure as an option. However, what Scripture says about God-given faith is that it never fails. It can't, because it's a perfect gift from above. James said this in James 1.17. Perfect faith can't, true faith can't fail, because perfect things are infallible. Now, some of you might be saying, but sometimes our faith in God fails, and so we doubt and such. Well, that's language, and this is what I'm protecting you against. For all intents and purposes, I might understand what you're trying to say, but I also understand that the context of the word faith in your statement means that there's a human side to it. If your quote-unquote faith in God fails, then there's a human side to it because God's faith doesn't fail. And that's what you have to understand, that you still have some misplaced faith something, some remnant of an old religion, I don't know, some remnant of a preconception, something in the mix, because God's faith doesn't fail. Jesus proved that. So anytime there's a human aspect, to borrow from 1 Corinthians 5, 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Anytime there's a human aspect, it's not a perfect faith. So it's true, your, quote, faith in God may flop, may fail, but that's because it's been perverted, it's been leavened. And so we have to be very careful about the context when we use the word faith. Up here on the board. True faith cannot fail. Jesus proved this. The culprit for failure is, is not faith it is the human will the culprit for failure is not faith it is the human will man in a sense fails faith when he chooses to oppose that which he knows is righteous you might have faith that God is righteous you may have faith in what he tells you about his own faith but you can fail faith you can fail faith in that sense that you get involved in something pure and you leaven the whole lump. That's what I'm trying to say, that remember the context when anyone is talking about faith. Are they talking about true biblical faith, God-given faith? Because that doesn't fail. But we fail all the time and we say that we have faith, right? Well, that's because our faith isn't perfected yet. That's because our faith has a human side to it. It is then that the context of faith changes from pure to adulterated, from infallible to fallible. So, we need to be careful when we talk about faith, because the context really decides what is being conveyed. So I'm just being extra cautious with you. I want you to remember that, and to start training yourself to listen for context, especially when it comes to faith. Because I'm going to use the word faith. I'm going to say, you know, that guy's faith failed. I heard it on Tuesday night. I'm sure I've said it a billion times. You know, that guy's faith failed. But it wasn't, that was a perverted faith then. I just want you to understand that there's a context there. God's faith, if it's perfect, doesn't fail. So I like to use the term true faith to distinguish God-given faith, for example. But even then, I believe people can get confused. Suffice to say, like so many things, context is key context is key that's why i don't like you know i'm I'm, you notice i haven't done a word study with you in a long time it's because they're very dangerous because we have this goofy habit of taking a word you know like faith pistis right we'll take pistis and we'll say faith is this yeah but it's not always that because there are places in the bible where the faith is failing and so there's a context So pistis doesn't always mean godly faith, let's say. It does when the context demands it, but it isn't when the context doesn't demand it. So faith has context, and we have to understand that. We can talk about man's faith and God's faith. Man's faith is fallible, but God's isn't. And as we close with on Sunday, whose ministry do we have ever present in our lives to ensure us of these facts? to ensure us of what true faith looks like, even though we might not have it you know, completely under wraps? Who's there? Whose ministry is available to us to show us, to encourage us? The Holy Spirit, of course, as He is a primary cause for our sanctification as Scripture reveals. Go to Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1. We're going to read this fantastic passage. I actually read... Uh, Romans 1 through 8 this morning over coffee, and I ended with this, obviously, and it was just so magnificent I said, I'm going to include this because so much of what the Spirit's been saying in closing, as we exit from our long study on experiential sanctification, so much of it is here, is evidenced in Romans 8, really all the way up to 8, but Romans 8 especially, so let's read this. Romans 8, 1, Just remember who's with you right now, who's ministering to your soul right now, who's working with your spirit right now, who's doing, who's encouraging you right now, God the Holy Spirit, who's sanctifying you as we do this thing, one iota more right now, he is God the Holy Spirit, so you have to think that way. Okay, let's read Scripture, because this is his toolbox, right? He reaches into, if he was a mechanic, this would be his toolbox. He's going to reach into the Word of God and pull out a wrench and say, quick, quick, quick. there's no condemnation in Christ, right? Quick, quick. And you're going to tighten that bolt in your soul and pull out a hammer and, you know, smack him side the head. and That's what he does. This is The Word is his toolbox. So just think of it that way right now, like literally right now. As we read Scripture, he's right with us. Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh." "...so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit..." And that's believers, of course, in view, have the Spirit's special ministry always. We walk not according to the flesh, that's what unbelievers do. We walk according to the Spirit. Remember context. If you don't believe me yet, that's coming up soon. "...for those who are according to the flesh, unbelievers set their minds on the things of the flesh." but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit." if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, a.k.a. if you are saved. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So Paul gets into this whole thing, right? Romans 7 was all about, geez, I don't do the things I want to do, I do the things I do Romans 7 was about that battle. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that the sin has, uh, you know, the vestiges of sin don't still take hold of us, don't tempt us through the body, this body of death. So verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, we still have a body, therefore we still have the vestiges, if you would, of sin through the body, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if you're saved, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwell in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, That's a reference to experiential sanctification. You are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. In other words, if you're being sanctified, you've got a lot of things to look forward to. And that's where we're taking our lessons, to ultimate sanctification. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Bingo. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That reminds you of the end of John three and the beginning of John four, where he says the same thing. Our confidence comes from the Spirit. If you're saved, He'll tell you you're saved. If you have faith, He'll convict you that you have faith, that it's real, that it's true, and etc etc again as we closed with on sunday it's the spirit's ministry that we have ever present in our lives to ensure us of god's love for us even if we are truly a child of god then his spirit assures us of our confidence that's what we just read which is something that increases over time of course as he goes about sanctifying us here's an analogy to help drive this home before we finish the passage I want you to think of the sanctifying work of God, the Holy Spirit, the fact that he points things out over time, that he has a certain ministry in your life, that he does teach you, but then he says, go out. I want you to go live this thing, too. It's called the spiritual life for a reason. The righteous man lives for a reason, doesn't just learn, actually lives because that's the other part of how I sanctify you. I don't just teach you, I also sanctify you. As you're living, as you go through your trials, you know perseverance brings, builds character, character builds hope, and hope doesn't disappoint because there's God, the Holy Spirit. Amen? All right. Here's an analogy. If I tell you I'm going to take you to Disney World because it's so much fun, you might believe me because you know I love you. However, as you physically go from Magic Kingdom and then to Epcot and then to Animal Kingdom your appreciation for my motivation increases. In other words, until you experience all that I had in store for for you during your trip, you won't have a full appreciation of why I wanted to take you on the trip in the first place. In other words, there's a lot of things I could say to you, but until you experience them for yourself, you don't have a full appreciation of why I wanted to take you. You're like, oh, now I know why you wanted to take me. Space Mountain was awesome. That's a little bit like what the Spirit does for us in sanctification. The very first thing he says is, if you're on this bus, you are saved. And if you're saved, I want to show you some things. Here are the promises, but I don't want you just to know them. I want you to live them. I'm going to point them out, and then you're going to go enjoy them for yourself. So the first thing he says is, if you're on this bus, you're saved. And then he proceeds to drive off, taking us to each place over time, pointing things out allowing us to experience things for ourselves. Think of experiential sanctification. This is how he sanctifies us. We're not sanctified by sitting on our tushes in a church. The real work is done after this. He's done something in you, and then he says, Go out. I need to transform you. I'm going to mold you. I'm going to sanctify you. He empowers us to live a life for Christ. And he teaches us and convicts us along the way when we're tempted to go astray. Remember, we still have that body. But the Spirit, is in his temple is us, right? And so he's going to fight any temptation of sin uh, along the way. It's like seeing, again, Space Mountain and my saying, you know, there's Space Mountain, the awesome roller coaster ride. And then I go take you on the ride so that you may agree with me. That's what he's saying. So all of that was to really drive this point home from verse 16. The Spirit testifies. The Spirit testifies with our own spirit that all of these wonderful things are given to us because God God loves his children. He's like, do you see how much God loves you right now? You know, it's no longer just this promise. And, you know, in Scripture, I mean, these are wonderful. They're important. They're the precursor. But he doesn't want you just to know that God loves you. He wants you to understand it. He wants you to even feel it, if you want to put it that way, that God loves you. So again, he's the one who testifies with our own spirit that all of these wonderful things are given to us because God loves his children. Again, look at verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So let's finish this beautiful passage now and let's enjoy the Spirit's ministry again Right now, even. Verse 17, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. And think about. The first fruits of the Spirit, think about right now even like Galatians 5, 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Those things are what we would call imparted righteousness. Those are things that we get in our daily walks. And those are a precursor to ultimate sanctification. Think about it. Love, peace, patience, kindness. Those things are going to be in full order, unfettered, in ultimate sanctification. And so the first fruits of God the Holy Spirit's ministry in our life is he saying this is, a, this is a taste of what it's going to be like when you're ultimately sanctified. And that's a beautiful thing. So again, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Now think about that. There's a context here. He's talking about praying. But that's a general statement as well. The Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, we've studied that over the course of this series, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. And Paul's using the past tense here for a future situation just to to sort of highlight the certainty of ultimate sanctification. As far as God is concerned, this is God's perspective, right? We're already saved and sanctified. Ultimate sanctification is just as real as this is real right now. Just as real. Ultimate is and from God's perspective, you are glorified. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Isn't that what we've been studying? He's not letting you go. He said, I'm not, I lost not one. Who's going to separate all these things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril. So. No. Just as is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. He's not letting us go. His faith never fails. Verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Spirit reminds us that God isn't letting us go. In other words, there's, there's nothing. You can sit tonight, write them down on a sheet of paper until you're blue in the face. There is nothing that's going to separate you from the love of God. The Spirit's ministry, and what He's been teaching us is, it's true, I mean, He's, su- he's such a uh, person of integrity, He's not going to break His contract. But that's, that's like the first order of looking at it. That's not the wonderful, beautiful, gravitating way of looking at your relationship with God. He wants you to know that He's not letting you go because He loves you. And In fact, the love is what actually motivated any so-called contract He's made with you. The love preceded it. So, the Spirit's ministry in our lives is stupendous to say the least, I hope you agree. But minimally, we must remember that it is supernatural, which keeps us from over-rationalizing it. However, it makes it really hard to describe in words. So rather than try to explain how he pulls off the things, you know, I'm that guy, right? I'm the engineer. I'm like, well, how's that work? I don't, I'm not satisfied with Bert's bees. I want to know how this little curly thing on the bottom works. Is that like a screw in there? Now I've got to empty the thing out and look at it. Oh, yeah, there's a screw in there. I want to know how this thing works the way it does. Well, supernatural things, you know what? I can't tell you exactly how the Spirit ministers to you. I know that He says He will, and I see the results all the time. So rather than try to explain how He pulls off the things He does... Let's just enjoy the faith God gives us to know that He does. And that's where the leap of faith is. We gotta stop trying to rationalize things. That's what religion does. They're famous for it. They rationalize things. See, you see, this is why you have to help God. You see, this is why you have to do this little thing and that thing. And this you see, you see, this is why if you murder someone. It doesn't matter if you are, quote-unquote, already saved, you're going to hell. You see, this is why, because it just makes sense. God loves people so much. If you kill one of his own, he's not going to, he don't want you in heaven. He wants you to go out. He wants you to go away from him. That's garbage doctrine. That's people that are probably unsaved trying to rationalize the things of God. I, well, that's your doctrine, you are unsaved, I can tell you that. Because you cannot hold to that gospel and be saved. But I don't want to digress. So let's just enjoy the faith that God gives us to know that He does do these things, that the Spirit indwells us, that the Spirit has a real ministry. Jesus Himself said, I'm going to send you my helper. He's going to remind you of the things, He's going to help you reach into your own toolbox and say, whoa, what's this wrench? What do I do with this thing? And I'll tell you what to do. Remember you do this? Oh, yeah, a torque wrench. Now I remember. He's the one who's going to do those things. How he does that, I mean, obviously, does anybody pick up a torque wrench? No. Is there any torque wrenches in here? No. So that's just an estimation. It's just an analogy. Just have faith and know that he does do these things supernaturally. Super means above natural would be rationalizing. As I've learned through experience, that's the safest, most fruitful approach to the Spirit's ministry in my life. I may not be able to fully describe how He does what He does, but I can quote scripture that says He does do it. I mean, people have stopped asking, but I used to get asked all the time, where do you come up with these lessons? I had an old coach of mine, my high school coach who I adored, um, he gets my blogs, and sometimes he's on the website and doing this kind of a thing. It was weird because he was my coach, right? And he's like, Collins, he's like, how do you come up with all those lessons? He goes, you got like a book or something, right? I said, no. I said, those are all fresh off the press. He's like, what? I'm like... Coach, I said, I probably got about 10,000 hours of studying the Word of God. I said, I had like 1,500 hours of lessons. I said, just that and, and, and I said, the Holy Spirit is right there doing this whole thing. He you don't get it though. How you get a book, right? No, there's no book, but that's how human beings rationalize it. For example, experiential sanctification. We know that the Spirit does these things. The dynamic spiritual life, God's love through His Spirit will see our sanctification to fruition. This is from Tuesday, I believe. He guarantees it as the great benefactor, the only one motivated by perfect love and the only one with the perfect power to pull it off. How does he do all that? I don't know. Anyone here want to try to put a um, an amp meter on the power of the Spirit? Anybody want to test the current? P equals I V. Anybody? No. Because it can't be done. That's the whole point. Who can describe the power system of God, the Holy Spirit? I can't. But uh, if I can't describe it, then I have to have faith that he does what he says he's going to do. And you know what? Looking back, he really does. I only have to look back a few weeks even and go, I know what he's changed from then to now. I know how he's he's grown me up over years. I may not have understood it in the moment, but looking back, I always do. That's the dynamic spiritual life. He's in the middle of it, folks. It's supernatural, so stop trying to rationalize it. I gave you... Baker's Dictionary. I'll just read these quickly. They're somewhat involved, but they're worth a re-read. The Holy Spirit is the dynamic of sanctification. Jesus said that He had to go away so that the Holy Spirit would indwell believers. The Holy Spirit is so named not because He is more holy than the Father and the Son, but because His specific ministry vis-a-vis salvation is sanctification. Bakers continues with, The Spirit that inspired the Word of God now uses it to sanctify. That's the toolbox, right? He inspired it, and now he's using it. The Spirit that inspired the Word of God now uses it to sanctify. Jesus therefore prayed concerning His own, Sanctify them by the, by the truth. And then He says, I believe your Word is truth. So the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And then the last bullet on, from Bakers... The Holy Spirit is not only, or the Holy Spirit not only is the restoration of the presence of God in believers, He also equips believers to serve the church in the world. As the fruit of the Spirit are the result of the reproduction of godly character in believers, so the gifts of the Spirit are the means by which believers serve others. So this is just. The Holy Spirit is right there with us every step of the way in the spiritual life. I'm not sure about you, but I'm really grateful for the Spirit's ministry. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2.13. When I learn these things, when I revisit them, when I'm convicted by them, I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that He's with me. I'm so grateful because I don't have the power to do the things that are commanded of me in the Bible. I don't have the power, neither do you. And God wants you to realize that. The sooner the better, right? I won't boast in my weakness. I'm, gonna, or I'm not going to boast in my strengths. I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. That was Paul's whole argument, right? Because his grace is sufficient. Second Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Up here on the board, just a little more on that phrase. Sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. By the Spirit refers to His ministry. Faith in the truth refers to the substance of His ministry. He inspired the word. He uses the word. That's the substance. We have faith in the truth, which is the word, which is really Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the word. He is grace and truth, etc. By the Spirit refers to His ministry. Faith and the truth refers to the substance of His ministry. Taken together, we are sanctified. This is how He sanctifies us. This is why it's so very important um, to show up to, to class, to, to read your Bibles, to take advantage of what you have in front of you. He uses the Word to sanctify us. We see it in Scripture. He uses the Word to sanctify you. So what if you show up to the job site, as I like to say, with no materials? Because you refuse to take in the Word of God. That person, as James would say, ought to expect nothing. Because they're a dipsuchos. They're a double-minded. On one hand, they're moaning and groaning why God hasn't delivered them. On the other hand, they're stuck in the flesh, not doing what He's asking them to do, minimally taking in the Word of God. That's dipsukos in the most practical sense. Because if you give the Spirit something to work with, He'll work with it. Remember also that God sanctifies us. He's predestined us to be sanctified for a Purpose. For a purpose up here on the board, this might help. 1 Thessalonians 4, three, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. There's a reason why. You know, he's not just playing, you know, tonka trucks in the sand. Wee, it's not this fun? There's a reason why he's sanctifying you. The purpose of sanctification is so that we are transformed into the image of Christ. Up here in the board, Romans 8.29 tells us this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So we have a purpose here, which is what Paul refers to in the very next verse that you're in. Look at verse 14. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.14 It was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, be sanctified. Jesus Christ is glorified. That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.23 1 Thessalonians 5.23 So start wrapping up your, wrap your mind around, oh, I mean, it's been enormous, right? It's been a mammoth undertaking, but the Spirit's with us, so He holds it up. I don't know, I haven't checked, but there have been, I bet you there's at least, way over half of our lessons have been on experiential sanctification. That's going on 60 lessons on it, 60 hours on sanctification. He's just sort of wrapping it up now. And he's saying, "Don't forget the Spirit's right there with you that there's a purpose for all of this." Go to 1 Thessalonians 5:23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass amen he also will bring it to pass in other words he has a purpose you've been predestined for it even from before you were born he saved you he's sanctifying you for a reason and he will bring it to pass and that should give you some confidence as well, because faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. As the Spirit's been teaching us throughout this series, there's no question in God's mind regarding a believer's salvation or sanctification. They are done deals. If you think about the whole curriculum, all he's done along the way is say, listen, if you're, in, if you're on the boat, you're in. You're on for the journey. You're going. You're going. You're going to Disneyland, baby, Right? You're going. But there are some people that aren't on the boat. He's hacked that off right in the beginning. That was why we had 20 hours of make sure you're on the boat before we go talking about the rest of the stuff and you're getting all excited academically about things that don't apply to you. So make sure you're on the boat. Once you're on the boat, my spirit will convict you and we're off and running. I will make sure this happens because I'm God. (laughs) So that takes us to ultimate sanctification if you can believe it we finally made it ultimate sanctification we're past experiential sanctification all that fantastic work just to give you perspective again there's three phases as far as God's concerned done deal we saw Paul even use the 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 uh, the past tense for something future glorified uh, because it's a done deal as far as God's concerned but we still can look at it at least in three phases Positionally, that's imputed righteousness. That's a judicial exercise. Ephesians two jumps to mind. Experientially, uh, we think of uh, the book of Romans, like we just read, imparted righteousness. That's a daily issue. Romans seven says it's not going to be perfect. It's going to take some time. Romans twelve says they're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're supposed to dedicate, excuse me, dedicate our bodies as uh, living and uh, uh, living sacrifices, and that's our daily worship for God. All those things sort of encompass experiential sanctification. And then ultimately, ultimate sanctification, where we're made completely righteous. We don't have this body of death anymore. Uh, All the uh, death itself is gone. Uh, Jesus Christ has made his enemies a footstool at his feet, and then he hands it all over to the Father, and the plan is complete. And then we just live in eternal bliss. This is, this last portion is where ultimate sanctification goes. And again, there's no, our hope is in the simple fact that as far as God's concerned, if we're a believer, this is as done as this. This is a done deal. It's not a question to be ultimately sanctified. That's where we're going. And that is the quote-unquote sanctification perspective that the Spirit keeps bringing back, saying, yes, this is how you look at it. But I want, in retrospect, especially from the eternal state, you're probably just going to look back and go, you just saved us and sanctified us. That was something that you wanted to do for us, and you did it by the merits of Jesus Christ on the cross, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a done deal for you already, right? Yep. Yep, there was never a question. I elected you before you were even born. I chose you. I called you. I predestined you. All those things were like this to me. It was only you in your construct of time, in your human finite brain, your mind, uh, that I gave you this sort of piecemeal stepwise thing called experiential sanctification. So, with that said, we are upon ultimate sanctification, my friends. Let me give you at least a working definition. Do not make this the absolute, you know, uh, study on ultimate sanctification because it isn't Uh, As far as I can tell, at this juncture, given the fact that we've done a whole lot of work in the past on heaven and things future, he wants just to remind you of this thing that's in front of you. So he's going to give you some basic things. As far as I can tell, again, it's not going to be a comprehensive study on ultimate sanctification. He probably has other things he wants you to, or he wants to get with you on. So regarding ultimate sanctification, we might start this way. This is the final phase of the salvation process. That's right. I said salvation. The final phase of the salvation process. Because salvation and sanctification, as far as God is concerned, pretty much the same thing. Do it this way. He saves us, he sanctifies us. There's a movement. This is the final phase of the salvation process. First Thessalonians 5:23. The glorification of the believer, Philippians 3.21, in the likeness of our Lord, John 8.54. It is guaranteed on the merits of Christ, Hebrews 10.10-14. 10, 10 it is realized at resurrection, John 11.25-26, when believers will be transformed and presented to the Lord as holy, Ephesians 1.4. And then we got some extra chapter and verses here, Ephesians 1.9-14. 1 John 3, 1-2. So on this first point, this is the final phase of the salvation process and the glorification of the believer. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. This is the final phase of the salvation process. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's finishing this process, in other words. Ultimately, you will be completely sanctified. Sanctified means set apart for God's purposes. On the second point, the glorification of the believer, go to Philippians 3.21. Philippians 3.21. On the glorification of the believer... Philippians 3.21 Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. In other words, you're going to be glorified, purified, no longer with this cruddy body of death no longer any sin, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the third point, in the likeness of our Lord, look at John 8.54. John 8.54. In the likeness of our Lord... What does that look like? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. In other words, same God glorifying the Lord. It's His sanctification plan. He's glorifying us to His image. Go to Hebrews 10.10. 10. It is guaranteed on the merits of Christ. Hebrews 10.10-14. 10, 10 to 14. It is guaranteed, and most of this, let's face it, folks, most of these things are old hat for us. Most of these principles are the same. It's just an extension, right? It's just the the ultimate goal of all this. We've studied so much on the the topic of sanctification and being sanctified. At this juncture, to me, this is almost a layup in terms of learning. It is guaranteed on the merits of Christ, Hebrews 10.10, By this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Therefore, it is guaranteed in the merits of Jesus Christ. It is realized at resurrection. Go to John eleven twenty five. It is realized at resurrection. John eleven twenty five. In other words, you haven't been resurrected yet. You're part of the first resurrection. Whether that's an issue that includes the rapture of the church or not is not the issue, but it is realized at resurrection John 11:25 and 26 John 11:25 Jesus said to her I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die Do you believe this And then of course when believers, it is realized at resurrection when believers will be transformed and presented to the Lord as holy. Look at Ephesians 1 4. Ephesians 1 4. And I'm really, I'm just presuming that you all, this is, most of these things are old hat, frankly. I mean, it's just sort of like saying, I've been driving. In this direction for you know a hundred miles, it makes sense that I'm going to be going the same direction the last mile I'm going to arrive having going the same direction right I mean that's what to me that's what ultimate sanctification really is because so much of discussing experiential sanctification includes ultimate sanctification as the end goal. ephesians one four just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's what we're destined for. We are the bride of Christ. We are to be made holy. We are to be presented that way. Uh, and then the supporting passages, again, for our two supporting passages, go to Ephesians 1.9. I'll just read them with you. We're almost out of time. Ephesians 1.9. To the end of that, or to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory that talks a lot about that purpose we talked about earlier that god has a purpose and part of that is to transform you or well holy to transform you into the image of our lord and savior jesus christ that brings glory to god you're his own and he has sanctified you that way and so it's to the praise of his glory so then, finally, as if to bring us back once again to the divine purpose of all of this, let's go to 1 John 3.1. 1 John 3.1, that sort of saddles it right up for us. 1 John 3.1. 1 John 3, 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We know that God loves us. We know that that's the ultimate purpose. Ultimate sanctification is sort of the, I mean, it's the ultimate goal of His love. It's the ultimate goal of the expression of His love, which is grace. It's the ultimate goal of the expression of His love, which is grace, and grace gives what? Faith, faith that saves, faith that sanctifies. Ultimately, we're set apart for His purposes. That's what ultimate sanctification means. That's what Scripture shows us dogmatically, without any doubt whatsoever, you shouldn't have any, any, I mean, if you had any, if there's going to be any doubting, and let's be fair, if there's going to be any doubting in this, in this, our existence, isn't it going to be during the experiential phase? Aren't the doubts going to, because everybody's pretty cool with, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to heaven, it's going to be perfect, there's no more, you know, everybody's pretty cool with that. So when you get to ultimate sanctification as a point of study, it's kind of like, If I have faith enough in what's going on right now in this chaos called life, then ultimate sanctification is like, can't wait for that. But nonetheless, that is that sort of thing that's out in front of us. And for good reason, God, the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture to pull us along that way, to remind us, to give us additional hope, not just that we're going to see fruit of the Spirit because we will, like Galatians 5 says. But not just that, but also that we have promises about ultimately being sanctified and not having to deal with this anymore. But I don't know about you, but I'm just sharing that I think that um, to me, ultimate sanctification, if, if you can get by experiential sanctification, ultimate sanctification is pretty much a layup. Pretty much a layup. And we're almost out of time. We've got one minute. I'll just tease you. We don't have any time to go into this. I will, upon my return, um, speak to you about these uh, few nuances that will be different between now and then. Just, you know, little things to think about. Again, I've got the scripture there if you want to jot it down. It'll be on the website. The eternal state experience. So all this talk about experiencing life now, well, what's life going to be like in heaven? What's it going to be like for all of eternity? Oh, here's a few tidbits, four of them. Not Again, not comprehensive, but things to think about that should, you know, give you a nice breather and just say, I can't wait. Um, and knowing what you know about even the four points on the board, maybe that, maybe that helps you, you know, take that step and grab the yoke or, you know, pass out a track or, You know, go to work and talk to someone about Jesus Christ. Maybe that, you know, I don't know. Because you want everybody, don't you want every even your worst nightmare. I mean, not worst nightmare, your worst enemy, right? You don't want them in the lake of fire. It's not like a prison sentence where after 100 years they get out. You're talking about eternal damnation. Eternal. You don't want your worst enemy there. And knowing these things, don't you want everybody just to get, you know, kind of over themselves and end up here so that we can rejoice together in the eternal state forever and ever? I do. So let this be motivation as well. The eternal state experience. No more flesh with a resurrection body. 1 Corinthians 15. No more body of death. No more bad roommate. No thing that you live with. Tempting you to the nines. That's going to be nice. No more tears, no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Well, that's going to be nice too, isn't it? Amen. No more pain. Revelation 21.4. No more marriage or procreation. All right, spouses. Half the spouse is like, yeah, no more. Can dump this thing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no more marriage or procreation. Jesus said we're going to be like the angels. There's not going to be marriage or procreation, Matthew twenty-two, thirty. 30. And then this is just a physical thing. No need for the Son. God's so glorious. No, no Son. Just think about that. There's no need for a Son. He's that glorious. Ain't that going to be awesome? And that's the eternal state. Who doesn't want, I don't care, I don't know, we all agree that we all want to be there, that we're all going to be there if we're saved. This we know. But who doesn't want everybody to be there? Amen? Ultimate sanctification. Doesn't get any better than that. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.